She was hailed as a visionary. Elizabeth Holmes and her company Theranos were going to revolutionise the world of medicine. I believe the individual is the answer to the challenges of healthcare. Her grand vision was to test people for hundreds of serious illnesses using a single drop of blood. Cheap and easy diagnosis for all. But last week, that dream came crashing down. A verdict in the trial of Theranos founder Elizabeth Holmes, the former CEO that was once touted as the next Steve Jobs, charged with 11 criminal counts of fraud and conspiracy. Now she's a convicted felon who is facing up to 20 years behind bars. Everyone, from the political establishment to her billionaire backers, had been duped. The former CEO of Safeway, which is a large grocery store chain here, talked about the presence she had on the room and, and even almost likened it to U.S. presidents he had met. And just she just said when she was in the room, she controlled the room. But her success was a tale of hot air and hubris. How was this Silicon Valley star brought down by a newspaper investigation? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, Elizabeth Holmes, the downfall of a billion-dollar startup. You founded this company 12 years ago, right? Tell them how old you were. I was 19. (laughs) So, don't worry about the future. We're in good hands. I work all the time. (laughs) And um, I'm basically in the office from the time I wake up and then working until I go to sleep every day. It's 2015. Elizabeth Holmes has been declared a rising star. The world's youngest self-made billionaire, she's being compared to Steve Jobs and Bill Gates. As she tours the studios with her glossy blonde hair, bright red lipstick and trademark black polo neck, she's wide-eyed but with a steely confidence. How do you want to be remembered? We want to be remembered for person by person you, making it not possible. We. Elizabeth I, I for, for making it possible for people who could never afford the ability to get care to get care. And for making it possible for people who otherwise maybe would have had to say goodbye too soon because they found out someone they loved had heart disease too late uh, to not have to do that. But that won't be how Elizabeth Holmes is remembered. For the last three months, as Holmes was on trial in Northern California, the Wall Street Journal reporter Sarah Rendazzo followed it all. Even while her case unraveled, Holmes still made an impression. So one of the very first times I saw her, it was really a bit of a a jarring experience because we were still outside the courtroom waiting to get in. And it was a day when there was a lot of media cameras waiting for her. And so when she came up, there was really a paparazzi scrum unlike any I had seen in in years. Living in Los Angeles, I I definitely have seen (laughs) my share of paparazzi. But, you know, it was I had forgotten how intense that can be when these cameras are literally an inch from her face walking along down the street with her. And through it, she looks at the cameras. She clearly she has a mask on, but clearly seems to be smiling. But doesn't comment at all, just looks very, you know, kind of neutral, you know, looking up and friendly while not engaging with anyone. And that was a stance she really maintained for all the months of this trial. She would come up, you know, look friendly, make eye contact, 
sometimes exchange some hellos in the hallways, but you know, really never engage in a substantive way with people. But she presented very well. You know, she was wearing crisp business wear every day. She attended with her mother and her partner most days. Her mother came every day, so she always had friends and family at her side. So she always kind of blew into court with these cameras following her and then would come upstairs and take her seat in the courtroom. And she would always sit incredibly upright to a degree that honestly must have been difficult to maintain. She wouldn't touch the back of her seat, if that makes sense. So she'd be sitting just stock straight, you know, kind of in her chair the entire time watching the proceedings. Could you sort of tell from what you saw of her in in court, could you understand why people were so enthralled to to the ideas she was putting forward? Yeah, so when she took the stand, which was a big surprise moment in the trial that we didn't know was coming and, and weren't, frankly, really expecting, we really got to see Elizabeth Holmes as the pitch person that she was for all those years. And so the jurors were essentially the ones she was pitching this time around, but she gave Uh, Very persuasive, very smooth arguments. She speaks in crisp sound bites and really is good at presenting her side of the story. And having followed it so closely and been so invested in in the story, describe for us the moment in court when the verdict was read out. Yeah, it was strangely anticlimactic. There's so much preparation that goes into verdicts, and especially for the reporters in court, we had plans and contingent plans and, you know, contingent plans to the contingent plans of if it's this outcome, we'll file this story and that kind of thing. So everyone has just all this copy ready to go. And so we all get in there, you know, there's kind of stress is high among the reporters. Stress is obviously, I I assume, high with Elizabeth Holmes and her family. This is such a, a pivotal moment for her. But when the verdicts were actually read, there was just no reaction at all. You know, the very first count was a guilty one. And then the second count was not guilty. And from there, it was a mix of guilty and not and and hung, but there was zero reaction from Elizabeth Holmes herself and from her family. Everyone just continued to stare straight ahead. You know, sometimes you see, maybe this is just something that happens on TV, but it seems like sometimes when verdicts are read, people crumble or they shout out or someone in the audience will yell something. Gasp, at least. Yeah, I mean, we're talking, it was just absolutely nothing. And so it was a, a bit of a surreal moment of, okay, well, I guess that just happened, but did it just happen? It was an odd moment. I mean, that's amazingly controlled. I mean, just explain to us exactly what the verdict will mean for her. So there were 11 counts and she was convicted on four of the 11. But in a way, it almost doesn't matter if it was one or 11 because each one carries a maximum sentence of 20 years in prison. And there's a lot of factors that go into it. And we've done some detailed analyses on sentencing that shows no one expects her to get anywhere near 20 years and certainly not the technical 80-year max that she could face. But ultimately, what I'm trying to say is that any of these counts was very serious and could put her in prison for many years. And so the fact that it's four is significant, even though she faced 11. She was then acquitted of four counts, and then on three counts, the jury couldn't reach a decision. Were you surprised by the verdict? I wasn't really. I thought that this jury was being very deliberate in its deliberations, uh, to say the least. They had been back there for many days. They hadn't asked any questions expressing confusion. You know, some I've been in some jury trials where they ask these kind of basic questions about the process or about the law where you're like, wait, what are they doing back there? Like they don't even understand what their job is. This jury seemed, you know, very intent on what it was doing. And so it I wasn't surprised to see that they split, you know, had a split verdict where they some of the evidence supported things, some didn't. And, and it, it seemed clear that they were going, you know, step by step and looking for evidence to support each count. And on counts where they didn't find it was supported, you know, they they ultimately acquitted. And so it it, 
it wasn't a total surprise to me, even though it was this very mixed verdict, you know, with both the guilty, not guilty, and the hung counts. And Sarah, you know, you you were watching this trial very closely, but it seemed like the whole world was. It, it made headlines across the world when the verdict came through. It's been described as the Silicon Valley trial of the century. But it all started with a Wall Street Journal investigation. Take us back to, to when that first investigation was published in 2015. What was the reaction at the time? Yeah, so I wasn't involved in the reporting at the time, but I did work at the paper. And it's funny because I can I don't have that many memories of times when I read specific Wall Street Journal stories, but I actually have this memory, I lived in New York at the time, of being on my couch reading the morning's paper on my iPad and reading this first story by John Kerry and thinking, wow, that seems bad. You know, and, and the Wall Street Journal writing style is very muted and factual and we're not salacious. And so it was written in an incredibly straightforward way. But even reading that first piece, I thought, wow, this is this is something, this is going to be really big. And of course it was. And John continued to write story after story for months and, and years afterward, ultimately leading to these you know, civil and criminal investigations and, and legal challenges that she had. And so it was also very interesting at trial seeing the role of the Wall Street Journal. It's not often as a reporter, you're sitting in trial and hearing about your own publication you know, quite frequently. The, the journal came up not, yeah. not with every witness, obviously, but with a number of them. And so I think jurors also were made aware of the role of the Wall Street Journal, which was really, you know, really something to see. I bet. But when, when the, you know, it's, it's being acknowledged now, but when the, the investigation was first published, there were some people in Silicon Valley and clearly a lot of the investors who didn't quite believe it. I mean, for people who haven't followed the story very well, tell us a bit about Elizabeth Holmes and the the company she'd set up and why it seemed to be doing so well until the Wall Street Journal's revelations came out. She was the classic startup story of dropping out of Stanford, having an idea when she was 19, 20 years old, and then going and raising money and, and, and trying to do it. And her vision was to eliminate large vials of blood, make getting blood testing less painful. She said she always hated getting blood drawn and hated needles. I've always said if you were to sort of think of torture experiments, it would be a phenomenal one because you sit there and sort of watch as your blood is sucked out of you. And so her vision was take blood from a finger prick just with a stick, take a few drops of blood and we could do all the same things that everyone else is doing with the huge vials of blood. So it was a great vision. I mean, that's a very appealing yeah, idea. Yeah, of course. Everyone would love to get a finger prick instead of that, you know, tourniquet on the arm and looking <laughs> for the vein and poking, you know, it, it's horrible. Yeah. And so she hired, you know, scores of really brilliant engineers and scientists and marketers and and everyone else you need for a company. And she raised hundreds of millions of dollars and they worked and worked and worked. And just this technology was very hard to do. And so they created several versions of devices that could do things to various degrees. They could do some, you know, handful of tests. But what came out at trial is that these proprietary devices could really only do 12 tests ever at the most. And even those 12, it was pretty unreliable in the results. But in, you know, kind of undeterred, they rolled out in Walgreens pharmacies. And Walgreens is sort of, for, for the British audience, is sort of a, a, oh, yeah. a chain, I guess, of, of pharmacies. It's Yeah, it's one of the U.S.'s largest pharmacy chains. And so they were in 41 pharmacies in Arizona and I believe one in California, but they had visions for a national rollout. They told investors they'd be in 900 pharmacies within a few years. And then 
things just never were quite getting off the ground in the way they wanted. They ultimately used traditional lab machines that any of their competitors were using, essentially. Sometimes they altered those machines to work with their finger prick blood samples. So people would get the finger prick drawn and would think it was being run on a Theranos device, but it was being run on these traditional machines that they had altered in a way to try to work with the smaller blood samples. And so, you know, there was just some misrepresentations made to the public and to the business partners about how they were running the blood tests. But in the meantime, I mean, for years, as you say, it was a very compelling vision being able to do so many tests with just a drop of blood. But for years, clearly the technology wasn't working. How on earth did Elizabeth Holmes manage to raise so much money? Yeah, she raised an incredible amount of money. People really bought into her vision and bought into things she was saying. And that was a a huge part of the trial was hearing directly from investors and seeing the direct pitches and binders that they received of information. And a lot of what she said was aspirational. And so investors could see it and think, okay, you know, maybe they're in a couple dozen pharmacies now, but they're going to be in 900 in a year. That sounds great. Or, okay, they're talking to the U.S. military mm-hmm. a little bit now, but soon they want to be on in medevacs. So, so that sounds great. And so I think a lot of it was built on promises. They mentioned the military quite a lot. How, how big were they planning to go? Yeah, I mean, they really were intent on working with the military, but the vetting process from the Department of Defense just never ended up kind of clearing these devices for use. But I think... Elizabeth Holmes had visions of these literally being used out in battlefield, even in Afghanistan and Iraq. So they had visions like that that just never came to be. One of the most surprising elements of this story is that, you know, you've got a, a college dropout with a great idea who sets up a business. Not only is she able to raise a lot of money, hundreds of millions, but also she manages to attract some very serious people to join her board. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, her board was truly incredible. And it was so funny, though, that it was for a healthcare company because it was basically a who's who of kind of government and and Washington insiders. You had George Schultz, you had Henry Kissinger, Jim Mattis, the former defense secretary and, and general joined the board. I mean, it was these huge names. There was former U.S. senators, two former secretaries of state. I mean, it was just this incredibly high-powered kind of Washington insider club. And, and George Schultz ended up being the connector who kind of brought in a lot of his buddies, if you will. And so it was a very esteemed board. But if you look, most of them didn't have any healthcare experience. So they really relied on her to give them the assurances on, on the actual science. And did we get a sense from the trial of how that had all come about? You know, these are people who don't have healthcare experience. They're very, very well-established, big names. Was there something about her and her ability to persuade people that that brought them all in? I think that was exactly it. We heard from several um, witnesses of the persuasive power that Elizabeth Holmes had. One of them, this wasn't a board member, but the former CEO of Safeway, which is a large grocery store chain here, talked about the presence she had on the room and, and even almost likened it to U.S. presidents he had met. And just she just said when she was in the room, she controlled the room. And Jim Mattis, when he took the stand, talked about, you know, he met her backstage when when, she, when he was giving a speech at, at one point. And he was just so compelled by her vision that he kept in touch and he would really go out of his way to meet up with her when he was in California. I mean, he was a very busy man who was running military operations in the Middle East at the time, but he would meet with her and we'd saw these emails he sent and he would say, oh, young Elizabeth, like the work you're doing is so great. You're going to change the world. And so it just seemed like a lot of people were very taken by her vision. And just give us a sense of just how big the company got and how much money Elizabeth Holmes managed to raise. 
before it all went wrong? So the company, based on its valuation rounds, was valued at $9 billion, which at the time, you know, now numbers keep getting higher and higher. But at the time, that was a very large amount for a startup. And Elizabeth Holmes's um, stake on paper was about half of that. So she was technically a billionaire on paper worth $4.5 billion. But of course, that was mostly in the stock. And so she didn't actually have that much wealth in, in a bank account. But, you know, we're talking this got into very, very high valuations. But it wasn't long before things fell apart. In a moment, Sarah tells us how the cracks began to appear in a modern Silicon Valley fable. But first... Hi, I'm Emily Dugan, social affairs correspondent at the Sunday Times. It's you, listeners and subscribers, who enable me to investigate. Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. If you subscribe today, you can enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's a remarkable success story for somebody so young and, you know, who was a college dropout, effectively. So tell me, how did it all go wrong? What what were the first signs of of real trouble? I mean, really, before the Wall Street Journal reporting, there had been kind of the opposite. There had been some pretty glowing magazine covers and, and newspaper and magazine articles talking about this next big thing entrepreneur and startup. A healthcare pioneer is being compared to visionaries like Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. This is a revolutionary company that threatens to change healthcare the same way that Amazon changed retail or Intel and Microsoft changed computing or Apple, yes, changed the cell phone. It could be that huge. And then it was really the the journal's reporting that began to poke holes and, and she really pushed back. Elizabeth Holmes really pushed back and the company really pushed back very hard against it and said that we were wrong and that we didn't have our facts right. Ultimately, everything that was reported, you know, came to be true. But it was those, it was the press articles that began a bit of a cascade around the same time as as the initial reporting. Regulators were also kind of getting on them, doing some surprise inspections of the lab, realizing that there were multiple labs that, you know, some had these Theranos devices that didn't really work. Others had these traditional devices that were just, you know, running tests that anyone could do. And so it it kind of just started to get picked away. And then ultimately, she was indicted in this criminal case. And that was in 2018. And then months after that, the company went out of business, kind of under the weight of all these legal hurdles and the criminal indictment. And from the Wall Street Journal's investigations and, and after that, we suddenly sort of had whistleblowers coming forward. What were they saying? How did they manage to alert the world to what was happening? Yeah, so it ended up coming out later in a Wall Street Journal story that one of the paper's first sources was Tyler Schultz, who was the grandson of George Schultz, the, the 
board member who'd brought in all these you know, high-profile people. And he had worked at Theranos as a junior employee and ultimately had a lot of issues with the science and what he was seeing and, and tried to raise the issues internally. And he says they wouldn't listen. So then he now has gone very public with his story. It was him and another young employee who he was friends with, Erica Chung, were two of the initial whistleblowers who, you know, kind of helped shed light. And it's uh, come out through the trial that that many of the other witnesses also were sources. You know, they said from the stand, essentially, that they spoke to the Wall Street Journal. So that was interesting to hear as well. And at one point, when these whistleblowers had started coming forward and the Wall Street Journal was running all of these reports, is it true that Elizabeth Holmes even turned to Rupert Murdoch, who owns both the Wall Street Journal and the Times, obviously, but was also an investor in in the company, to try to get him to quash the story. Yes, so that came out at trial. I was glad that was a day I was sitting in on the the testimony, and it essentially came out that she, I think it was even before our first story, she essentially reached out and and tried to get Rupert Murdoch, like you say, to, to quash the reporting, but he ultimately didn't, and the stories ran. It was just such a strange set of circumstances. He was a huge investor who had just fairly recently invested in Theranos, I think to the tune of around $100 million. And so he had clearly a lot of stake in this, but to his credit, did not kill the Wall Street Journal's reporting. Yeah, As a journalist, it's just so bizarre to think she would even have tried. I know. I mean, it's horrifying. Fascinating. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's not what you want to hear is that someone's going above your head, you know, several steps up, up to the very top. Yeah. And during the trial, you also heard from a number of scientists. And there was a really curious, sort of almost fraudulent episode, I suppose, involving Pfizer. Talk us through that. Yeah, that became a really big piece of evidence that repeated throughout the trial, which was that in the early days of Theranos, a big push they made was with pharmaceutical companies. Because if you have a medical device, I guess one big thing you do is to partner with pharmaceutical companies and try to get involved in drug trials. And so, you know, they wanted to be involved with these pharmaceutical companies and having their device be used for different drug trials or different kind of research these companies were doing. So they were pursuing a lot of contracts with pharma companies at the beginning. And they did work with Pfizer and do a small study with Pfizer. And Theranos wrote up a report of the results. But then Ultimately, they, Elizabeth Holmes made it look like Pfizer itself had written the report, and she added Pfizer's logo at the top, but then the document also was altered, jurors saw, and, and there was some language taken out and changed a little bit to make it look a little more favorable and look like it was an external validation by Pfizer of the technology. And so a lot of investors said they were given this in their binders and were told, hey, Pfizer and these other big pharmaceutical companies have validated our technology. And they thought, well, great, you know, if a company like Pfizer has looked at it and validated it, then that must you know, mean it's good technology. But it came out that it was a little bit of sleight of hand happening there. And what about sort of during the, during the, the trial and the prosecution, you also heard from some of the patients. I mean, I think you only heard from three of them. Tell us about that. Yeah, the patient testimony ended up getting much less attention in the trial. And I think that's part of the reason why the four counts that they acquitted on all had to do with patients. But the patients did testify about tests that they got from Theranos that they believed to be wrong. One woman spoke about receiving tests indicating she was miscarrying when she was, in fact, pregnant and ended up going on to have a healthy baby. Another woman talked about a test she got that led her to believe she was HIV positive when she wasn't. And a man talked about getting, yeah, yeah, not something you want to get. And then a man talked about getting some um, troubling, I believe it was prostate-related results that, that led him to believe there could be a problem, but they were really erratic and all over the board. And he ultimately you know, took the tests elsewhere and, and learned that it wasn't, it wasn't as it seemed. So yeah, they were all very on the stand for very short amounts of time, you know, but did give 
that patient perspective as well. And the trial seemed to really turn a corner when the defence began and, and suddenly, surprisingly, Elizabeth Holmes took the stand herself. Tell me about that. Talk us through that moment. Yeah, and that was a moment that was really a surprise moment in court as well. Most of the weeks of trial, there was only testimony on three days, sometimes even two days. It was a limited schedule that the judge didn't want to wear everyone out. So he thought if we only do it three days a week, Mm. you know, that could help. This was a week where they were trying to pack in some extra days because they had lost some days earlier. So it was a five-day week. We had been there Monday to Friday, and this was on Friday afternoon. The defense had started its case earlier that day. They'd called two fairly sleepy witnesses. There was a paralegal who went through some charts summarizing various stats about Theranos that we all said, okay, fine. There was a former board member who joined much, much later on after the Wall Street Journal's reporting who was they were trying to use to show, oh, look, she did take steps to change things once there were problems. And so we thought, okay, fine. And then it was an hour left at the end of the day and her lawyer stood up and said, the defense calls Elizabeth Holmes. And we all thought, wait, is this really happening at 4 p.m. or 3 p.m., I guess, on a on a Friday, on this long, exhausting week, I was so tired. I had almost like gone and caught an early flight. So like, nothing's going to happen this afternoon. I need to go home. And <laughs> thank goodness I did not. There goes the sleepy Friday. Yeah. And so then she ended up being on the stand for many days after that. But that was how it started, was this Friday afternoon. And what was her defense when she spoke? So she really went through point by point, a lot of the things that the government brought up and tried to rebut them and give them a little different spin. That Pfizer document, you know, the government hadn't made clear or didn't know exactly who had altered it. And she said, yes, I'm the one who added the Pfizer logo on top. But, you know, I just did it because this was something we did in conjunction with Pfizer. And so I thought it made sense to put the logo. This wasn't something shady that I was doing. And, you know, when it came to using uh, normal blood machines, she said, well, we didn't tell anyone because it was a trade secret. And she she invoked trade secrets a lot, saying, well, we had our own methods for using these traditional machines. And so if, if other people knew what we were doing, they could also take smaller blood samples and, and do it this way. So she had an answer basically for everything that the government was trying to put on her. Now, we haven't yet mentioned another big character in this entire scandal, and that's her former business partner, Sonny Bolwani. Tell us a bit about him and how he featured in this trial. Yeah, so he was charged in the indictment alongside her in 2018, and he's the one who faces a trial soon on, on the same charges. Their, their trials ultimately ended up being split. So he wasn't on trial here, and so she could point to him, you know, and he couldn't really defend himself. So throughout the trial, she did say things were, you know, Sonny's responsibility or that was something Sonny was in charge of. She didn't deflect to him as much as some people maybe expected her to, but he was a figure that jurors came to know throughout the trial as her number two and and someone who she worked directly with in running the company. And it it seemed at times to go slightly beyond that, where she almost seemed to imply that he'd been quite abusive and yeah. coerced her into some of this. I mean, tell us a bit about their relationship and, and what you learned from the trial. Yeah, so there was a complete kind of side issue that came up during her testimony, which is that one day she raised a lot of very, very damaging abuse allegations against him involving both sexual and emotional abuse. And these are claims he he strongly denies. But she painted a, a pretty a pretty ugly portrait of their relationship as, as him being someone who really controlled everything about her life in terms of what she ate, how she acted, how she needed to be a better manager and, and kind of shed the the kind of weak girl she was and, and become a stronger leader. And so they brought all of these allegations out and we'd gotten a sense from some pretrial filings that this could happen, but we weren't sure if it was going to. 
But what the defense didn't do was tie it directly to the case. In closing arguments, which is a time when you kind of package all the evidence up in a way that jurors, you know, you kind of tell jurors how they should interpret all the evidence. The defense didn't mention the abuse allegations whatsoever. And the government, in its closing, said, hey, yes, she said these things. Yes, you can believe her on them, but that doesn't mean that she didn't commit these crimes. Basically, one has nothing to do with the other. So it was a little bit of, frankly, an odd bit of testimony that was obviously very emotional and and difficult to hear, but ultimately didn't actually relate to the charges at hand. And now that the trial is over and she's been found guilty on four counts, I mean, what happens next? Because since the end of the scandal and and the entire case coming to, to court, she has gone off and, and had a family, for example. She's a new yeah. mother. What happens now? You know, I'm sure you're familiar a little with the U.S. legal system and that it's never really the end. You know, there's this verdict, but then there's <laughs> there are still many attempts her lawyers can make to clear her name. There's first attempts that they're going to make to the trial judge directly. There are very high bars and very hard to, to win on those. But if those fail and she is ultimately sentenced, once the sentence is final, she can file an appeal and that can often take, you know, many months or, or even years. And so she still has chances to to get this reversed. But you know, in the meantime, she does have a, a baby that she had in July with her partner, Billy Evans. And so clearly there's a lot at stake for them personally. You know, even if she faces any time in prison, that's obviously something a family doesn't want to happen. And while that's still being wrangled over, will this verdict have presumably sent shockwaves through Silicon Valley? I mean, will this make it harder for other young entrepreneurs to attract investment? Will it just make investors a bit more cautious? Do you think it'll change the culture at all? Yeah, I do think around healthcare investments, there might be more careful vetting going on, which probably isn't a bad thing when you're rolling out a healthcare device that's being used on actual patients and and people. You should probably be pretty solid on that before getting money. But a lot of Silicon Valley is raising money on things that may or may not end up working. And that's kind of just the nature of the game. People throw a lot of money at a lot of things, hoping it's going to be the next Facebook or the next big thing so that they can triple or tenfold their their investment and, and become zillionaires. And so I think just the nature of startup investing is that a lot of it goes into companies that aren't going to work, but people might be looking a little closer to make sure there's something there behind the the pitches. And Sarah, you've covered this story so closely now for months. Why do you think it struck such a chord? I mean, you know, ultimately, this is a story of one startup gone wrong, and yet it's made global headlines. There's a hugely successful podcast series. Mm -hmm. There are books. There's a TV series of films about to be made about Elizabeth Holmes. What is it about this story that really resonates with people. I think it's the whole package of the, you know, kind of striking blonde college dropout who emulated Steve Jobs, wore these black turtlenecks. You know, that was kind of part of her early image that I certainly do think added to the allure and kind of public aura around her for a time. She had this compelling vision. You know, she held up these tiny little vials that that would hold the finger prick of blood and say, this is all you need. You don't need the needles and everything else. So there was just a lot wrapped up in the imagery of it. And then ultimately all the people who were supporting her, all the big names and celebrities, the Rupert Murdochs, the the Betsy DeVos family, the Walton family, all these big names who were backing it, all these big names on the board. So it was really just a combination of celebrity and young startup founder allure and, and all of these things. And then the scandal element of it just made it all just something people couldn't kind of couldn't take their eyes off of.
You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, legal reporter for The Wall Street Journal, Sarah Randazzo. The producer today was Asia Fuchs. The executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by Tom Birchall. If you enjoyed this episode, please do leave us a review. It'll help others to find it. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.